Um, so my name is Will Witherington, and I am one of the pastors here. Uh, but for some of our guests, I know there's a lot of parents here. Campus Arch. I've also been the Campus Arch director for Lexington for 20 plus years. And, and so I uh, just wanted to say welcome to some of you parents that are here. And, and I understand the trepidation that you feel about sending your child to the northeast corner of Thailand or the northeast corner of Ohio. Uh, both are complex places, uh, to say the least. Um, but I want to assure you, for having done this for 22 years, we love your children and want to care for them and their souls greatly. And I have, I have my, my daughter, Sarah, who's been on 18 summer projects since she was born, is now going as a student for the first time. So I join you in your parental uh, concern there. But I just want to say welcome to you. In 1987, there was a group of college students, uh, one of my, and you guys that go to Title will get to meet this man I'm about to say. His name is Brian Furpo. Brian was a freshman-ish, uh, sophomore-ish at uh, the University of Montevallo, which is just outside Birmingham. And he and a group of guys had become Christians there on the campus through the, the ministry of, of, a, of a man named Bob McNabb. And they began to pray every morning in Napier Hall at 6 a.m. Now that alone is a miracle that college students were up at 6 a.m. doing anything. But they were praying. And they were praying for the world. And they woke up on 6 a.m. on these mornings and they prayed Romans 15, 20, which says that they, that God had a, that Paul wanted to be led by God to take the gospel to people who had never heard, to an unreached people. And so Brian and his friends began to pray that God would use them to reach the unreached people of the world. Well, I'm happy to report that that miracle of college students praying at 6 a.m. led to another extremely rare thing. And Brian and his family have lived in Thailand for 27 years. And God has used them to reach the northeast corner of Thailand, which is the Isan people group, which is one of the top 40 unreached peoples in the world. And that's where our team in 2018 is going to go. I'm going to fill in the gaps of that story. But here's the question I want us to entertain. What was it that gripped Brian and that group of college students in Montevallo to do that? To pray those prayers and eventually pack up their families and move to Thailand. Well, it's the same thing that gripped the disciples in our passage here. They and the disciples were convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that his name should be proclaimed all over the world. They were convinced of that. Last week, we looked at this passage, and you can see I've named this one, You Are Witnesses Part 2, which obviously means there's a part one. You can go listen to that online and get the details of this. But last week, we looked at what it meant to be a witness from an internal vantage point. God is doing something in you to transform you by his spirit, and you bear witness that he's alive because you're different than you were. You think differently, you live differently, you talk differently, you give differently, you eat differently, you walk differently, you speak differently. Why? Because Christ is bearing witness that he is alive in you. This morning we're gonna see how that witness becomes an external witness that he intends for you to take your witness to the world. We're gonna see that. But before we dive headlong into the external witness, let me just review a couple of things that are important from last week. So if you look at your passage there, verses 44 through 47, Jesus basically says to them, the whole Old Testament speaks of me. And to the Jewish listener, when he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, they would have heard the whole scriptures. 
All of scripture, you, you understand, while Jesus was living, the New Testament wasn't written. All they had was the Old Testament. Those were the scriptures. And he says, all of them speak about me. All of them say, I will die, I will raise again, and all of them say, you must go tell this message to the world. But it says here that he opened their minds, literally disentangled what was garbled in their brains. They needed to understand some things they had never understood. One was that the scripture spoke about him. Two, and most primarily, this was not a Jewish religion. This was not a new Jewish cult. This was the eternal mandate of God. The Messiah would come and die and rise again and that his name would be proclaimed to all nations. They needed to ungarble this, that those Gentiles that they hated, those Samaritans that they hated were to receive the message of the gospel. This was not just a Jewish hoarding. The most basic summary of the gospel, Jesus says, was in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. But not only the basic message of the gospel, but the message of the gospel and its intent for the world was also in the law, prophets, and Psalms. And so like we did last week, let's look at this. Where do we find the proclamation that the good news of God's grace ought to go to the nations? Where do we find that in the law? The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah or the law. Moses is the author of all five of those. The Jewish audience would have known this. The law of Moses, the first book is called Genesis, which means beginnings. The beginnings of the revelation of God, which we have as our scriptures, says that God told Abraham, I am gonna bless you and through you, all the nations of the world are gonna be blessed. The very foundation of the law was rooted in, I'm gonna give you something and you're to in turn give it to the nations. It was not meant to land on Abraham and stick. It was meant to be a conduit through Abraham to the nations. The nations are blessed with the spiritual riches promised to Abraham when Christ is proclaimed. The law clearly said that Israel was to be a light to the nations. The prophets pick up this message in, the, in, in, the, in most of the Old Testament. We see this proclamation, for example, in Isaiah 49, 6, where Isaiah the prophet says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The entire story of Jonah, the prophet Jonah, is a story of a rebuke to Israel and a reminder that God has a heart for the nations, even terroristic nations like Assyria. Assyria was arguably the most horrific nation of its day, maybe even of all time. And God said, I want them to know of my love. Jonah, take it to them. Jonah said, no thanks. I'd rather just keep it for myself. I don't like those people. I don't like the way they look. I don't like what they're about. I don't like their religion. I don't like their food. I don't like their highways. I don't like whatever. I'm not going. Whole book of the Bible is the honestly comical journey of Jonah being forced to go because God has a heart for the nations. Jonah is a personal example of a corporate problem that Israel had. They were hoarding God's grace. It was meant to be bent out to the world. But not only in the law and the prophets, we also see it in the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms, you can read it for yourself. But one quick example, this morning when I give the benediction, 
every time I'm in this pulpit, I choose to give the benediction from Psalm 67, one and two, which was a corporate worship benediction in Israel back in the Old Testament days. And it says this, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us so that his ways may be known on the earth and his saving power among all nations. Even the benediction of Israel was meant to propel them out of corporate worship into the world as a light. Ken Hughes, a great preacher and commentator says this, that Easter night, as Jesus gathered his disciples privately, he grounded gospel and mission in the Old Testament. He showed that the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all taught his suffering, all taught his death, all taught his resurrection, all taught mission to the world, beginning with Jerusalem. The gospel was and is for the world. This is why in verse 48, he says, you are witnesses of these things. What he's saying to them is, listen, you're a witness to these things. You, you bear witness to these things internally. We talked about this last week. But he very much meant to say, you are now to go be witnesses of these things. This is why he quickly says to them, I'm gonna give you a promise for this. Verse 49, he says, I'm gonna give you a spirit, my spirit, to help you. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is gonna be your aid, power, guide to do this. Not only will the Spirit transform you inwardly by reminding you of what I've said, teaching you my word, but he will empower you and inflame you to proclaim this message to the world. As I told you last week, the Hebrew, the Greek word for witness is martus. You can hear the alliteration there. Literally means martyr. And as the book of Acts, which is Luke's second book, would say, these people, all of them, all 12 of the disciples, save John, who was exiled to Patmos, would die a martyr's death because of this. But let's pick up the passage now as Jesus ascends to heaven. Look at verse 50. This gives us great clues into what he has in mind. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. What is going on here? What does Jesus mean? Or what does Luke mean when he says that Jesus blessed them? This is a common, common phrase in the Old Testament, blessing. Sadly, like much of our Christianity, it is domesticated and comfortable, misunderstood at best. Because it sounds like well-wishing. Jesus blessed them and said, may it go good with you. I wish you well. Enjoy your day. Hope you don't have any trouble. Hope it goes good for you. Kind of a blessing. Or gesundheit, you know, bless you. You sneezed, hope that didn't hurt your eyeballs. That kind of thing. We've domesticated this word blessing. Let me ask you something. In the Old Testament, blessing was serious. Abraham put his son Isaac on an altar because he believed he was blessed. Jacob and his mother tricked Isaac to try to get a blessing. Were they trying to do that to get a well wish? No. Would you, would you put your only son on an altar for a good wish from somebody? A nice Hallmark greeting card? No, you wouldn't. Neither would Abraham, neither would Isaac, and neither would Jesus. 
They understood blessing to be something very different than we do. Let me show you why. Genesis 1.28 is where we see the first, 1.22 and 1.28 are the first places we see this word blessing. Here's what it says, Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, this is Adam and Eve, to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over everything. This reads like a formula. And in our Western American mind, we read it that way. God blessed them and said to them, Go be fruitful and multiply. Okay, cool. God helps those who help themselves, right? Great. God wants me to go be fruitful and multiply. He's given me all the things I need. Give me the good well wishes. Give me a couple of resources. Give me education. Give me some money. I'm gonna go get after it. And that's how most of us read that. But even the Hebrew language prevents us from that. Not just the logic of that, because if, we're, if we play that out logically, we failed miserably at this. And so does God's blessing not have effect? What does it mean? Did God's well wishes not land good on me? <laughs> if it's up to me? In fact, the Hebrew, if it were more a more wooden translation, if we were directly to translate the Hebrew to English, this is what it would say. God blessed them to ensure that they would be fruitful in multiplying. It was meant to be a promise, not a prescriptive command. Now, that gives understanding to why Abraham would put his son on an altar because I know God's gonna either raise him from the dead or find another way to bring about that blessing promise. This is why they wanted, this is why Jacob on the night he wrestled with God said, I will not leave until you bless me. I have to have the blessing or I can't survive. This, is what, this wasn't some arrogant two-year-old asking, I'm not leaving till you bless me. This was him saying, I realized I'm at my end. My brother is gonna kill me. And if this promise is gonna happen, I have to have your blessing. It's not gonna happen on my will. I'm a tricker, a deceiver. I'm a liar. God, please give me your blessing. This is exactly what Jesus said to them before he ascended. He picked up his hands and he blessed them. He did not wish them well. He made sure it would happen. How? He sent his spirit. Make no mistake about it. This promise is certain because the Holy Spirit now is roaming and, and ravaging all over the earth in his people. It's gonna happen. And to make it even more sure, he ascended back to heaven. Listen, I'm gonna go back and run the world from the throne room of God. I'm gonna go run every molecule, every government, every cancer. I'm gonna go run every car. I'm gonna go run everything in the world so that one thing happens. My name is exalted in every corner of the globe. I'm gonna make sure that happens. And ensure that, I'm gonna go to heaven. I'm gonna leave you my spirit. Because you know what happened with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the others? God fulfilled his promises despite them. They were despicable sinners, rapers, murderers. You read the Bible, it's not some tranquil, nice little storybook for children. It's horrific. But one thing never failed, God's promise to make for himself a great name among all nations. Why? Because it's up to him, not his people. But God gives us the privilege to participate. And here in Luke, we see Jesus saying that. Here in Luke, we see Jesus saying, I'm gonna send my helper. I'm gonna go away 
if I go away, it's to your advantage because I'm gonna send you my helper and he's gonna propel you out. It will be completed. Now look at the response, verse 52. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. You'd almost think that they would be really overcome with sadness that Jesus was leaving. But you need to see this, as one commentator said, as a lover saying goodbye, but only for a short while, knowing that the return will be all the more sweet because of the time apart. Because when this Jesus returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there will be no cancer. There'll be no war. There'll be no divorce. There'll be no abuse. There will be none of the horrific things you and I experience. Why? Because he would have triumphed over that and brought a new heaven and a new earth. And the disciples knew that because they, Jesus had taught them to pray this way. Remember how he taught them to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He intends everything that's gonna happen in heaven one day around his kingship to be taking place and inaugurated here. That's why he gave them his spirit. The same response in heaven of worshiping the king is meant to happen here, and that's what they did. They went away joyful. And this indeed is how the Bible ends. You know, the Bible starts with Genesis, the beginnings, and it ends with Revelation, the fulfillment of everything. And, I, and I, want, I want you to see this. So take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 5. Please take them and look at this with me. Several months ago, I preached a sermon on this called Weep No More. You can go listen to that sermon for more of the details of this passage as I expositionally worked our way through it. But let me briefly tell you what's going on in this passage. You can see the headings. The first section is John sees a vision of a scroll. And this scroll is written on the outside and on the backside. Inside, it's totally written in. And it's sealed with seven seals. You're not meant to picture seven little stamps. You're meant to see a total sealing. It's not openable. I know that's not a word, but it can't be opened. My wife always makes fun of me for making up words, but it's not openable, okay? But inside this scroll is everything you want to know about history. This is the total history of God and his will, and it's sealed up. Why do I have brown hair? Why was I born in Lexington? Why did my parents leave? Why is there prisons? Why is there wars? Why is there famine? All the things you wanna know are in this scroll, and John says it's sealed. No one can open it. And the passage says he began to weep. Folks, you would weep too. If there was no explanation to all the atrocities in your life, why you did, from everything from why you haven't won the lottery and that other bozo did, from why such and such atrocity in the nations happened and why it didn't. Everything you wanna know is in that scroll and if it could not be opened and you were just told, sorry, bad luck, sorry, no well wishes for you, you'd weep too. It would be, it would be the most horrible thing in the world to know that the scroll of God was not knowable. But then one of the elders steps forward and says, John, stop weeping. There is one. And he is able to open the scroll and explain it to you. Look at verse six. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, total power, with seven eyes, total wisdom, 
which are the seven spirits, total presence of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of whom was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It is finished, it is complete. Genesis 1:28 is completely fulfilled right here. Before the lamb slain for the, for the nations of the world. It says 24 elders, Old Testament, 12 sons of Israel, New Testament, 12 disciples of Jesus, four living creatures, all the earth, four corners, north, south, east, and west, heaven and earth. This is totality, finality, fulfillment right here at the throne room of God. God did what he said. But notice what's in the hands of the elders. This is my application for today. Golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This may sound strange, but my application for you today is prayer. Will you pray? See, there's many ways that I could have applied this this morning. And many pastors and preachers over the centuries have. Let me give you some examples. David Platt, in his book, Radical, which has been received with varying degrees of acceptance. But he challenges comfortable, domesticated, casual Christianity. And he says this, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. In a sermon given 18 years ago to thousands of college students at a conference called One Day, John Piper was pleading with them as young men and women not to waste their life not to buy into the worldly idea of retirement one day where they merely play golf, ride a boat, and collect seashells. And he says to them, with all my heart, I plead with you, do not buy that dream. Don't waste your life. Because the last chapter before you stand before the creator and give an account for your life, you do not wanna say, here's my shell collection, God. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, in the 19th century said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. God save us from living in comfort while sinners are sinking into hell. C.T. Studd, the Michael Jordan, LeBron James equivalent of cricket in England, left everything to go be a missionary in China, said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice too great can be for me, a mortal man, to make. One life, it will soon pass. What's done for Christ will last. John Calvin, our, our hero of theology that we base most of our theology on, nothing could be more inconsistent with the nature of faith than that deadness of heart which would lead a man to disregard his brethren and to keep the light of the gospel choked up in himself. There is no people no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation because God wishes that the gospel should be proclaimed in all without exception. John Calvin. 
So this morning, I've chosen the words of another 19th century preacher, 1806, Horatius Bonar. It is much to be feared that we are weak in the public proclamation of the gospel because we are weak in private prayer. So at this point in a sermon like this, and having read quotes like this, you might expect me to challenge you to move to Africa or at least to walk next door and share Christ with your neighbor. Or you think I might challenge you to sell your house in the suburbs and move downtown to be amongst the poor and weak of our society or maybe just give a little more to the church this year. And all of those would be good applications. But this morning, my challenge to you is to pray. I'm gonna challenge you to seek God's face. Seek his will for how you, your family, we as a church might be used by God to see this wave of the nations coming to him. What is certain, as we saw in Revelation 5, about the fulfillment of this promise is there are saints praying. That's not in question. The evangelistic techniques of each culture might be in question. Your fortitude to be a witness might be in question. What's not in question is before the throne room of God, as he unfurls the throne of his, the scroll of history and the nations come in, is people are praying. That's not in question. Will you be one of them? Will you pray? God is going to do what he said. He's going to. And it's like a mighty tsunami. You know, a tsunami, a big wave. And God has given you a surfboard and he wants you to wax that surfboard and get ready to ride the wave of his grace coming over the world. And that surfboard I think is prayer. Now, let me close by showing you one more passage if I might. I want you to turn, last time I promise, to Matthew 6. It's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 6. Now, you may or may not know this, and I don't mean to insult anybody, but when, when Matthew or any of the Bible writers wrote the Bible, they didn't sit down and go chapter 1, verse 1, and then write, comma, chapter 2. Like, they didn't do that. They just wrote. They wrote letters. They wrote history. They wrote their, their accounts. Sometime later, people came back and put chapter headings and numbers that are helpful. They are, they're indexing. They help us study. They help us reference. There's, not, there's nothing wrong with that. But at times, it can make us confused as to when the breaks happen and what was going on in the flow. This to me is one of those moments where I wish we didn't have chapter nine, verse 39, break chapter 10, verse one, because we read it that way and we shouldn't. And I wanna show you why. Matthew 9, 36. I'm gonna read through 10, five, the first couple of words. Matthew 9, 36 through chapter 10, verse five. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Just parentheses, notice the heart of your savior right here. Compassion, a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly, pray earnestly 
Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him, this is chapter 10, right? And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles were these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. These 12 Jesus sent out. Here's why I think this is important. Who was the answer to their, to Jesus's request for them to pray for workers, to pray for laborers? Who was the answer? They were. Jesus told them to pray for laborers, then he sent them out. If you will join the heavenly chorus around the throne by praying, God will move you from your prayers to the appropriate action that he desires. I believe prayer shapes our hearts, our desires, our lives to match the will of God. So will you pray? Will you pray for Thailand? Will you pray for your spouse? Will you pray for Scotland? Will you pray for your children? Will you pray for college students? Will you pray for your neighbors? Will you pray for our schools, Trinity, public schools, those being homeschooled? Will you pray for our city? One of my mentors said, will you talk to God about men more than you talk to men about God? Will you talk to God about men more than you will talk to men about God? What he was saying, will you pray? And that's my charge to you today. You see, in the book of Acts, which is Luke's second letter. Again, scripturally speaking, should have put them together. Luke and Acts should have been right together as one account because he gave an account to Theophilus about the life of Jesus, Luke the gospel. Then he gives an account about the acts of the apostles, what Jesus's people who believed in the resurrection did after he ascended to heaven. And he gives an account 29 times prayer precedes any action that the apostles did. 29 times. The early church was led by the Spirit to pray and then they were led out of prayer to unreal action. So I told you about my friend, Brian. He and his group of knucklehead college buddies began to pray for Thailand and 30 years later, 31 years actually, there is a vibrant multiplying church in the Isan people group in North Thailand in Konkin. But I asked him, I called him this week. I talked to him, I talked to him about twice a month because we, we do a lot together. I said, Brian, who else was in that prayer group with you? Because I know of all the missionaries, right? It's like, oh, there's another story about missionaries. He said, oh, there was all these businessmen and school teachers that now are elders in Birmingham, donors to the ministry, leading the church of Christ all through Alabama. And I said, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That in a little group of prayer at 6 a.m. in Montevallo, Alabama, God chose to explode the gospel to Konkin, Thailand, and to Birmingham, Alabama, and now to Lexington, Kentucky. That's what he does. And he does it because prayer matters. Prayer is itself a labor. And so as we do every Sunday, we come, we take communion at this church every Sunday because we believe this table is the best application to the word of God. This table reminds you that Jesus Christ is your intercessor. This is a table of intercession. 
Jesus' intercession for you. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Hebrews 7, 25. He is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God since he is always making intercession for them. The intercession of Christ is twofold and this table tells it. The first intercession is he says, God, I'm interceding on behalf of my brother, Will. I paid for his sins on the cross. Will is yours. I'm interceding for Will. And you need to insert your name there. My sheep know my, my, I know my sheep. I name them my name. They hear my voice and they come to me. This table is your intercession. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Savior of the universe calls you by name and says, I intercede in the throne room of the Father on your behalf. I am yours. The second intercession is he says to the Father, the nations are mine. They are my inheritance. I'm interceding for them. This table is for all those who are yet to name Christ. And we come to the table of intercession to join Christ as he intercedes on behalf of the nations. This table is crucial to your faith. And I pray that we will join Christ as he prays for us and we will pray for others. Let's pray. Lord, again, just the conviction in my soul for people to know that they are yours. People in this room who aren't sure that you've called them by name. I pray that today they would hear your voice and know that you are interceding for them, that your blood was spilled for them. And then, Lord, I pray for us as a people that we would not have a deadness of heart, as Calvin said, but we would have compassion for the crowds and that you would send us out into the harvest fields of the world to bring in a harvest of righteousness, of justice, of peace, of joy, of life. Oh, God, just this week we have seen so much darkness So much darkness, God. Please come and dispel the darkness. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Oh God, help us to shine the light to the nations that they may no longer struggle. Help us now at this table to feel your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.